Acts chapter 17 verses, I'm sorry, 16 through 34. So you can follow along in your Bibles or you can read on the screen here behind me. Now while Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this teaching is that you are presenting for you, are, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and followers who lived there would spend their time in nothing except for telling and hearing of something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commends all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead." Now when they heard of the resurrection from the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius and the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you uh, specifically for the great stories that we hear in the book of Acts and how they encourage our faith, Lord, and uh, bring us to deeper uh, hope and trust in you. I pray this morning that you would uh, be with Matt as he shares with us, Lord God, anoint his words, God, uh, but also give us uh, understanding hearts and, and ears that we may hear what the Spirit is saying to the church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you, Matt. Good morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. For those of you who don't know me, um, my name is Matt as well. We have a bunch of Matts around here, like seven or eight of them. And uh, you met two of them just now. Um, can you do me a favor? Can you open those, uh, those doors all the way for me? Thank you very much. Um, if I have not met you yet, please do me a favor. Uh, introduce yourself to me uh, afterwards. I'd love to uh, get to know you. 
And just to bring you up to speed, if this is your first time here, we're, we're in a series called Back to Our Roots. And uh, we're looking at the early church and then asking God, what do you want us to be as a church? What kind of church do you want us to be right here where you place this here in Escondido? And so while we're in the book of Acts, we're watching the Apostle Paul visit uh, different cities and plant different churches, and, and we're seeing how different ways he does ministry there. And he is sharing with, uh, with everybody a powerful message of, of hope and grace that is found and experienced in the person of Jesus. Today, we are looking at Paul's visit to the city of Athens. And the city of Athens is a city of idols. At that time, Athens was still the, the intellectual center of the Roman Empire, or the world as it, as it were. It was the home of, of famous philosophers like Plato and Socrates. Or if you learned about philosophers through Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures, Plato and what? Socrates. Yeah, see, nobody, nobody in the first service saw that movie. Imagine that. They were like, what? <laughs> God gives Paul an audience with all of the philosophers of the Areopagus, also known as Mars Hill. And, and we get to see here how Paul interacts with these curious but deeply skeptical philosophers regarding the Christian faith. Now, maybe you're here, you weren't planning on coming to church, you don't really do the church thing because you're skeptical. Or maybe you know someone who is like a family member or a friend or, or a neighbor or a coworker. Let me tell you um, the kind of church that, that I'm praying that, that we are. It is my desire that we are a church that does not just exist for ourselves, that we exist for others as well. We want to be a church that welcomes people who are curious, people who are skeptical, people who are, are questions. We want to welcome them into a, process of, into a process of wrestling with the gospel together uh, with us. That's the kind of church that, that we want, want to be. We want people to be able to wrestle with the gospel with both their heart and their mind. And our passage here is kind of a, a case study of, how that might, of what that might look like. Paul shows us how to engage our culture. And if you're following along with the outline, that's point number one, uh, engage the culture. When the Apostle Paul shows up, uh, in Athens, there are over 30,000 different idols in a city of 10,000 people. That's three idols per person, right? Verse 17, Paul does what he usually does when he shows up to a new city, and it says that he reasoned in the synagogue with his fellow Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Now, the marketplace is the center of, of cultural activity. It was the media center where, where people would show up to find out the news of the day from the herald that would, 
would declare the news, everything that was happening. It was, it was the art center where people would, would perform. It was the finance center where people would conduct business. It was the political center where people would discuss and, and debate new ideas. And it says that, people, uh, that, that the apostle Paul showed up here and he reasoned with them. And that word reason is a word that's directly related to the word dialogue. And so what that means is that he was not just talking at people as they walked on by. He was also thoughtfully listening to people. He was getting into their, their minds and processing what they had to say. And he was asking questions and trying to understand their worldview. Like any good missionary would. I think most of us agree that's a good practice, but then we don't apply that to our own context, which is kind of weird. Now, here's the thing. Paul is not hiding from the culture, and, and he's not blasting the culture. What he's doing is he's engaging the culture. He's listening and persuading. He's processing and, and challenging. He's thoughtful, and he's respectful. Paul cares enough about them to learn about their culture and to find points of contact, to break the ice. I mean, he even quotes the author's of, of that day, famous poetry that all of the people would have been familiar with. Now, here's the deal. Christianity is not just a private faith. It's not just a me and Jesus kind of faith. Christianity is not a, a Sunday-only faith. It is a 24-7 faith that, that we get to share with, with others. Now, now, maybe that idea kind of intimidates you a little bit. And, and I get it. And look what the people here thought of the Apostle Paul when it says in verse 18, some said, what does this babbler wish to say? I found out this week that the original word for babbler here is seed picker. Seed picker. Apparently, it's for someone who pecks at ideas like a chicken pecks at seeds and then spouts them off without fully understanding them. It was an insult. And what they were doing when they called him a seed picker, they were calling him a poser. They looked down on him. Now, here's, here's what you can expect. I mean, Jesus even told us as much that when Christians engage culture, we will be criticized even if we are as loving and as respectful as God tells us to be. The Bible says that what other people think about you does not define you, okay? Now, the, the Bible isn't saying to have an attitude that's like, I don't even care what you all think because you guys are a bunch of idiots anyway. That's not the kind of attitude he's asking us to have. He is saying your identity is in Christ, so you don't have to be controlled by what others think about you. And, and, and it's so critical that we are secure in our identity with Christ because if we are insecure in our identity, You'll either hide from the culture in fear or you will blast the culture with disrespect. You'll be defensive and unnecessarily offensive. 
But, but here's, here's the encouragement for us. We have every reason in the world to engage the culture with love and hope and humility and confidence because the gospel is the power of God and you have the gospel. I mean, just look at history and the impact that it's had. This, Areop- this Areopagus that, or that, that was mentioned here in our text, it was the intellectual center for the Roman world. Do you know what the intellectual center of the Roman world is now? It's a tourist trap. That's it. Nothing more than a stop along your tour throughout the land. Within 250 years of this account, that's all it took. All of the popular worldviews of that day faded while the gospel of God's grace just spread all throughout the Roman Empire. Why is that? Well, it's because people were looking for answers about the meaning of life. And and they had deep foundational longings. And the the worldviews of the dominant culture were not satisfying those those questions and, and that meaning for life. But Christianity, what Christianity and the gospel did was provide lasting answers that endured and prevailed. Verse 18 says, speaking of some of the dominant cultural views, verse 18 says, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. The Stoics were the moralists, and the Epicureans were the hedonists, the the pleasure seekers. Now, the Stoics, they believed in in absolute truths and that the meaning of life meant uh, that you were supposed to be, that the meaning of life was be a good person, be a virtuous person, which sounds good on the surface. But if you were hit with challenges and, and suffering, if you were clobbered with that, their only answer for that was don't let it get you down, keep your chin up, stay strong, stay focused, and if all this fails, just try not to think about it. Let me tell you something, Stoicism is making a major comeback right now. A major comeback right now. But historians point out that Stoicism didn't work. So we're about to repeat history here. And what happened then is that Christianity offered eternal life with God and and a, a deep hope that was so comforting that the Christians suffered with joy and they suffered with courage and they suffered with with a sense of freedom and their lives became a testimony to a watching world that needed answers. There was something attractive about what is it? And that's exactly why, why Peter in his letter says to always be ready, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. And then he adds, but do this with gentleness and respect. That part usually gets forgotten. The Epicureans believe that when when you died, that was it. So therefore, the meaning of life was to live for pleasure, especially sexual pleasure. The Christians cherished sex within the context of a covenant relationship between a husband and a wife only. And the Epicureans viewed that as, as restrictive the history teaches that pleasure didn't provide lasting joy or contentment, and it made them lonelier than ever. And we see that happening in our world today, too. Here's the thing. In every single age, 
Christianity will be opposed by the cultural views of that day. But throughout history, what we see is that those cultural worldviews fade in light of the gospel. You know what this means? This means that your confidence is not in you. It's not in in your uh, ability. You might think that you're not smart enough or strong enough or or whatever to be able to engage the culture and and talk about your faith in a a natural, uh, you know, loving, confident, confident way. But your confidence is not in you. Your confidence is in the gospel. And the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And he's given it to you. That's what you have. The gospel gives you the courage to engage the culture. But now, the question is how? It's our second point. How do we engage the culture? And in our passage, we see the Apostle Paul do two interesting things here. He affirms and he challenges. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Now, you see what Paul's doing right here? What the Apostle Paul is doing is he's gaining a hearing with these people. He's looking at their culture. He's observing it. He's perceiving it. He's processing it. He's finding points of contact. He affirms to the Athenians that their search for God is something that Christianity resonates with. That we're all, we are all made with this homing device in our soul that longs for God. But then he proceeds to tell them who this God is. And what he did, what he's doing is he's using a a connecting point to make biblical truth more more accessible. Just just yesterday, on Saturday mornings, I have a a group of guys that I meet with, um, a gospel-driven leadership group that I I meet with on Saturday mornings at 8.30. And and, uh, yesterday, what we were talking about was we were talking about how you're not just saved by grace, but you are changed into uh, uh, the likeness of Jesus, you will become Christ-like, you are sanctified, you are transformed by grace as well. Most people say, yeah, okay, maybe I'm saved by grace, but it's up to me to grit it out and apply these biblical principles or whatever. It's up to me to keep good standing with, with, with God, which totally ignores the, the imputation of Christ's righteousness, that we are given by God's free grace, his righteousness and processing how we, you know, we live that out. And we were singing about it, you know, this morning. By gr- I will slay my sin by grace and grace alone. And um, we were talking about living in response to the good news of Jesus. It's an expression of gratitude. And it reminded me, as we were talking, of the movie Saving Private Ryan. Now, who here has seen Saving Private Ryan? Okay, there's still a lot of you who have not seen it. I'm about to spoil it for you, but you've had 20 years to see this movie. Okay, 20 years. So um, here's the thing. It begins um, in a graveyard, of a, mili- a military graveyard. And this older man is, is walking through the graveyard with his family, and, and uh, the family lets him walk ahead, and he walks to a, a headstone that says uh, Captain Miller on it. 
And he's there staring at it, and the camera comes in on his face, and it fades, and it, there's a, like a flashback to World War II, D-Day. And uh, uh, Captain Miller's there, who's played by Tom Hanks, and they're storming, storming the beach, and it is hell. It is pure, relentless hell. And, and somehow, Captain Miller leads his men through all of the gunfire and explosions and everything. You know, the story, they, they, um, they, they are successful, they are victorious in that battle. And once they're done, Captain Miller is given some new orders. He has to go find this kid, Private Ryan. Uh, he has to go further into enemy lines, find Private Ryan, bring him back so he can go home. And so that's exactly what Captain Miller does. He gets his group. They go. They look for him. There's battles along the way. He loses a lot of his men. And at the very end, there's this one kind of defining battle, and, and soldiers on both sides are, are, are killed. And, and it ends with Captain Miller leaned up against a, a tank or a wall or something and Private Ryan over him. And, and uh, yeah, Captain Miller's shot. And he grabs Private Ryan uh, by the collar and he whispers into his ear, earn this. And the camera goes back on his face and you see the face transform into the older man standing above the headstone. And he begins weeping. He begins crying. His wife comes alongside him and, and is comforting him. What's the matter? And he says to his wife, tell me I lived a good life. Tell me that, that my life mattered. Tell me that uh, he needed to know that he earned this. And, and you, you hear that hopelessness and that, that insecurity and, and wondering if he was worth the death of these men and just the confusion that he, that he felt. And something stirs in your heart, in your heart and just kind of shreds your heart a bit because we can identify with that. We can identify with the fact that, that how do we know if our lives matter? How do we know if my life is really of any value whatsoever? He was told earn this, and he had no idea if he could earn that or if, they, if that he earned it at all. But the good news of the gospel tells us, well, it doesn't leave us with that in uncertainty, with that insecurity. The gospel tells us that Jesus went behind enemy, enemy lines, rescued us, and gave his life up for us, died for us, and he didn't say earn it. It was by his grace and grace alone because he chose to love you. You can never earn it. That's not the point. He just decided to rescue you because he loved you. You want to know how valuable or not? I mean, apart from Christ, you can't know. But because Jesus paid the price of his shed blood on the cross, I mean, there's nothing more valuable. You're not going to find your value in this life or how you live your life. You're going to find it in, in Christ. And, and nothing and no one could ever take that away from you. That's the, the power of the gospel that inspires us to live for him. With loyalty and with love, a response of gratitude, Right? So, in our culture, 
There are songs and movies and poetry and TV shows and storylines where so many people are looking for answers and they don't have them, but you do. You have the answers. You have the power of the gospel. You have so many opportunities to share that good news with the people that you know with gentleness and respect to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. So this is what we see Paul in in, in our text, Paul quotes the Greek poets when he says in verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for, for we are indeed his offspring. Now, everybody would have recognized those, those lines of poetry right there. They were originally used to describe Zeus. And Paul cares about these people so much. and wants, And because he cares about them, he wants to effectively communicate with them to make things clear to them. Paul loves them enough to relate to them in a way that hopefully gains a hearing so so that he can offer life-giving answers. And so out of the same place of love, he then challenges them and their culture's view of God. They had idols that they made themselves with their own hands and then they worshiped. And then they needed to make these gods happy or, or appease them, uh, you know, when their gods got, you know, angry. And so Paul says, let me tell you something. Let me tell you about this unknown God that, that you're looking for. Verse 24, God made the world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And so he's saying, this God you're looking for, that you're searching for, is all powerful. He created the heavens and the earth and sustains your, your breathing in, even in this moment. But he's also personal, and you can know him and grow close to him. That was way different than, there are, than, than Zeus, right? Verse 29, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by, by art and imagination of man. In the times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. So Paul engages the culture with both affirmation and challenge. You know, there's been a lot of bad, well, there's always bad news, right? And sometimes the bad news gets worse and there just seems to be a tsunami of bad news. And this latest tsunami of bad news, um, there's, it's about the abuse of power and hearing stories about various actors and religious leaders using their power to abuse women and abuse children, CEOs profiting from unethical business practices at the, at the cost of others, young unarmed black men killed by someone acting as judge, jury, and executioner in one fell swoop, women and children being sold and resold over and over again by sex traffickers. We hear all that news and we're outraged. And we should be outraged. Our world needs the justice of God to set things right. The Bible affirms. 
affirms that outrage and that desire for justice. The Bible teaches us that life is precious because we are made in the image of God and God will judge in righteousness to make those things right. But then here's the challenge, right? If this life is precious, then how can so many people accept the modern Darwinian view of survival of the fittest? Most people, by far, I mean, by miles and miles, embrace a school of thought that is based on survival of the fittest. The strong devour the weak, and they call it science. But that's totally inconsistent with the outrage. See, those ideas have consequences that need to be challenged with the gospel, that there is a God who is powerful, but he became weak. He became a man. God the Son came to us to show us that lives are precious and that we and our world can be restored, that we and our world can be healed through faith in his life, death, and resurrection. And until you have this God at the center of your life, you'll, you'll have this this obvious disconnect between your moral outrage against injustice and a secular view of life where there is no basis for moral outrage. See that? That's affirmation and challenge. So let's, let's, let's apply this, okay? For those of you who are Christians here, I, I want to challenge all of us, including me, we need to evaluate our heart, evaluate our life, and be honest with ourselves. We need to ask ourselves, am I more tempted to only affirm and never challenge? Or am I more tempted to always challenge uh, and never, never affirm? Some of us are tempted to, who, don't, who are tempted to, to never challenge and to only affirm. We act like nothing's wrong. There's no challenge necessary. I, I don't want to challenge my, my friends and family. That, that would be uh, un, unloving, but it's actually unloving because without any a challenge, no lives would be changed. Others, others of us are tempted to criticize everything constantly. You say, well, I'm not criticizing everybody constantly. Well, maybe, but that's your loudest message. It seems like everything, your, your opinion of everything, that everything is, is bad and toxic and you come across as, as prideful and condemning usually because you are prideful and condemning. And you wonder why no one listens to you. I mean, I have to look at myself in that. And guess what? The result is exactly the same as people who don't do any challenging and that is no one has their life changed. It's no different. So where are you? And you all can help keep me in check on this one. Okay? Better pastors, far better pastors have lost their way with this. When Paul engages the culture, he affirms and challenges. So discern what is good and, and what could be received under God's common grace. Discern what is toxic and, and needs to be rejected based on God's moral standard. Discern what aspects of culture can be uh, repurposed and, and redeemed for kingdom purposes. It's thoughtful engagement with the culture. 
One final thought under this section. Some of you might be wondering, if you're paying attention to Paul's message here, why didn't the Apostle Paul say anything about Jesus? I mean, what's, where is it, Paul? It's true. He does not mention Jesus. Yet. Yet. Some commentaries say that it was because he got interrupted in verse 32 where it says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Like, that's it. That's going too far. And they started mocking him, maybe drowning him out. That's what some commentators say. Other commentators say that he was giving the, tr the truth in, in doses to give them time to process you know, what he was saying. Either way, it didn't end there. He had other opportunities to talk about Jesus because it goes on to say that, that others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius and the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Faith in the gospel is a process. If you don't know nothing about Christianity or Jesus or who he is or what he's done, coming to a place of giving your whole life and heart and soul to him, where you trust him and live for him, that's a process. Therefore, presenting the gospel is a process. It's not about a hard sell where you push and pressure people to pray Jesus into their hearts. You know what? There are way too many issues with that to address right now, but just remember this, that it's a process and it involves a genuine relational approach. And you can have a genuine relational approach with somebody that you just met. Last part here is why. Why should we engage the culture? Well, why does Paul engage it? It starts with verse 16. It says this. While Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. He was provoked. That word right there is most notably used in the Old Testament to describe God who was provoked when he saw Israel turning to idols. That there was a sense of anger, but it is rooted in love. Let me explain. How many of you have kids or have done babysitting? Right? I'm sure all of you at some point have experienced this kid doing exactly opposite of what you told them to do, right? Do not put your fork in the light socket. Why do you tell them that? Because you love them and you don't want them to get hurt, right? But I want to put my fork in the light socket. I'm going to do whatever I want. Kapow! And you don't go, oh, you're so sweet when you're disobedient like that. No, you're provoked, right? In the gospel, God looked at the world and saw that our hearts were full of idols. It's been said that our hearts are idol factories. 
And these idols aren't so much graven images or, you know, like little statues or whatever, but they are things that we look to and trust and give our lives to, uh, you know, for, t- so that our, our hopes and dreams are, are realized. Idols of comfort or pleasure or power or ambition or control or security or beauty, and we chase them and we give our lives to them, and we justify it, and they end up controlling us and consuming us and disappointing us because they all fail us and hurt us and the people around us. And we keep going back to them. And God sees that. And he's provoked. Because he loves us. We're ruining ourselves and and others to get what we want. And so what does God do? He engages us. And the way that he engages us is not simplistic. So many people like to believe that, that we have a God that just accepts everything we are and everything we do. Whatever makes you happy is totally fine. Go ahead, stick your fork in the light socket if it makes you happy. Others believe God is just waiting for an opportunity to zap you with a lightning bolt, to punish you when you get out of line. But the God of the Bible is both holy and loving at the same time. When you look at the cross, we see both the righteous anger of God against sin that destroys you and other people, and you see his unconditional love. We were so sinful that God the Son had to die for our sin. At the same time, God the Son was glad to die for our sin. See, the gospel shows us that that God will not allow all of the wrongs in the world to go unpunished, unchanged, but he also does not want to punish us. So God deals with the full measure of our sin and idolatry by taking all of our judgment and condemnation upon himself. And he doesn't then look at us and say, now earn it. It's all out of sheer grace. It's all because of his love. Because he just chose to love us. That is the God we're called to trust. To the extent that you see how God lovingly engages you with truth and sacrificial love, you will engage others with truth and sacrificial love. The goal is not condemnation. It's restoration. Now, for those of you who are exploring Christianity, one of the things that the passage points out here is that Christianity is a thoughtful faith. Paul engages with those who are curious and skeptical, and he invites them to engage the the good news with him. I want you to know that you cannot make up your mind about Christianity if you have a closed mind before you really investigate Jesus, really investigate who he is and and what he's done. Christianity does not require that you check your brain at the door. You can bring your brain with you. Use all of your intellect and rationale and philosophical inclination. Engage in the process. I mean, it's more than that, but it's not less than that. 
for those of you who are Christians, if you don't love the people you are engaging, don't engage them. Please. Because it usually means that, that you love being right more. Or, or you love the way, the feeling it gets when you feel kind of superior, that you got something that these idiots don't. Or you'll be condemning. Or you won't don't have any respect for them. And guess what? Surprise, surprise, they're not going to listen to you. Remember that God has engaged us with the gospel in a way that did not lead to condemnation, but to restoration. So, so pray for the desire to see the people that you know, other people maybe that you're about to, pray that you will see them experience the same grace that you experienced in the person of Jesus Christ and his truth. Because of the gospel, it is it is our desire to be a church that is not just for ourselves, but for others. That we are not a church that gives you some kind of self-help seminar with Bible verses sprinkled in with it and then just lifts Jesus up as an example. We need to be a church that presents the gospel, who Jesus is and what he has done, that he was our substitute that he lived a perfect life and gave us credit for it, that he died the death we deserved, gave us credit for it, that he rose again from the dead to give us new life and eternity with him. That is what saves you, and that is what transforms you and turns you into someone who looks a lot like Jesus. We don't want to be a church just for ourselves. We want to be a church for others also. Christianity is not just a private faith, a you and Jesus kind of a deal. It is a public and an engaging faith. And it is my prayer that God uses us to represent Jesus and his kingdom well. Amen? Would you bow your heads?